fashion is that fabulous escapism that people yearn for. It's strange how this funny little thing called fashion can be a vehicle for hope. It's been a time of such reflection and um, it's, it's the word I've heard well, almost more than any other word that people have really reflected on what they do, why they do it. In a funny way, I've had been able to have the focus and the time to do something that I haven't been able to do for 40 years. And that's been extraordinary. And actually, I think very, very clearly, you know, the purpose of fashion or the purpose of what I create is maybe to give people a dream. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion, and welcome to the BOF podcast. This week, we welcome the celebrated milliner, Stephen Jones, who talks to our editor at large, Tim Blanks, about how the coronavirus pandemic has impacted his own creative process and provided some time for real focus. As Stephen says to Tim, now he avoids the constant quest for perfection because perfection often kills spontaneity. Here's Tim Blanks with Stephen Jones, Inside Fashion. Hello, welcome to BOF Live. Um, Today we are talking to Stephen Jones, who's coordinated himself beautifully with his look against that huge big Trechikov lady and just behind him there. And thereby hangs a tale, I'm sure. You do not have a Trechikov lady hanging behind you without a good reason. Well, this is from a very long time ago. I did a group show, um, it was a charity show with Red or Dead about 15 or 20 years ago. And they had these shirts made out of this satin print of the Blue Lady by Trechikov. And I said, I love that. If ever you happen to have a spare panel, please send me one. And literally three years later, a little envelope arrived with this folded up in it. And, um, you know, I'm quite a Trechikov fanatic, always happy. Influenced, I think, by Dougie Fields and Derek Jarman, who love Trechikov too. And um, so she's always looking over me. How, where do you get, you must have so many um, souvenirs of your life and fashion, uh, which now is how, how many years has it been? What? Oh, just the three. <laughs> <laughs> what anniversary are we looking at? <laughs> no, I mean, literally 40 years ago, on the 1st of October, 1980, that's when I opened my little shop in Covent Garden. So it is exactly 40 years ago, shockingly enough. I can't quite believe it. Uh, you know, I was, uh, you know, Paul Weller uh, has a new album out. And I was reading the other day that he is only the third person to chart and uh, to, to have a number one album in each of the last five decades. And you, do, you wow. think of Paul Weller in the jam, you know, 17, 18 years old, however old he was. You just can't anticipate that that's what your life turns into. I imagine you must feel the same way when you think 40 years. I mean, you were a mere 12 when you made your first hat. Exactly, thank you, Tim. Um, now, I, I, I just wanted to make it to the next day. For, I mean, so when, you know, when you're 19, somebody who's 30 is ancient, you know, beyond ancient. And now I'm 63 and I'm amazed I've had a career in hats. You know, every day is a surprise. I never get used to it. And I think of the, the time, the times that you have straddled um, as a hat maker, um, times of extraordinary change and challenge and look, look at what we're going through right now. So actually you're the best person in the world to ask, does a hat help in hard times? Well, a hat helps in Zoom, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> <clears throat> because frankly, sorry Manolo, it doesn't matter what you've got on your feet, you'll be naked from the waist down, but your head's so important. So glasses, hats, hairdos, makeup, all those things. Do, do hats help in hard times? Absolutely. I mean, for example, some of my favourite hats are from wartime because people had to, or no matter whether it was the Second World War or the First World War, people have to, you know, roll their own, they have to make their own things, they have to use their creativity. And somehow it, a hat can be a little sign of optimism. Um, to put that into clothing is too, too difficult, but a hat can be a little sign that there's hope. Have you, have you noticed that um, in, in, in the last few months? Do you see, I mean, we haven't been able to go out. What have people been doing with their hats? 
I mean, it's been quite interesting. For example, in the run up to Ascot, um, we were wondering a, a month beforehand, number one, we didn't know if it was going to be run or not. But there was a, a sort of certain sort of feeling that somehow we wanted to do something. And then I had a meeting with the, the great and the good at Ascot and said, but, you know, hats and dressing up are a sign of optimism in spite of everything, in spite of everything that's going on. And we didn't know what it was going to be. And in fact, with the British Hat Guildman chairman, we did a, an online auction of hats that we'd all made and raised £25,000 for the emergency services. And tell us why Ascot is so important to a hat maker. Well, it's a bit like Christmas, New Year and your birthday all rolled into one. This is in Britain because this is really where hats are not about practicality or chic or elegance or all those things, even though they can be about that. But it's really about exuberance and dressing up. So the idea of being exuberant and dressing up in these times just seemed to be this weirdest thing. But for example, if you look in the Depression in the 30s, when people didn't have enough money to eat in America, they were all going for the, to the movies. So fashion is that fabulous escapism that people yearn for. I don't know if they're going to actually wear it, but that, that idea of escapism is wonderful. And actually during this time, I mean, I, I've worked at Dior for 24 years now, and at last I understood the new look. Sorry, it took so long to get there. And it wasn't about what Christian Dior created at all, but it was the hunger of the people who were observing it. I mean, also it was the fact that it was this dress made out of yards and yards and yards of fabric they couldn't possibly afford but it really was the people together with, you know, it was the customer and the supplier together. It was the audience and the performer. That, but the new, the new look, um, and also after World War I, what, what happened, the explosion of kind of exuberance and creativity, um, they, they, both, they both followed on events that you could say had terminated, you know, that, the war, the war, the World War One ended. World War Two ended. People could then look forward to a rebuilding, and you know there was a renaissance, I guess, of of a kind in in art and fashion. And um, now we're in a we're in a different moment. And and you know, I, I guess the big question is how what will people want from fashion in this world where there's I think uncertainty has become this incredibly dominant force in our lives and uncertainty on every level. Yeah. Um, just a little anecdote about, about this point. And I think I've got this about 80% right, not even 90% right. I remember Anna Piaggi telling me a very long time ago when she was a junior reporter on La Repubblica in Italy, she actually went to, to cover the Hungarian uprising and you know, being invaded by Russia at that point. And she went with her her, her husband to be um, Alpha Castaldi to report on this. And when she came back, the, photo, the, the editor said, we can't publish these photographs because basically everybody was really dressing up because they thought tomorrow would not come. So they were sort of where Hungarians were wearing their finery where they could. Women were going out wearing lipstick and perfume. And in fact, this is one other thing in the Second World War, Everything was rationed. The two things which were not rationed were cosmetics and hats, because Churchill thought they would be too, it would be too demoralizing not to have those two essentials of a woman's wardrobe that women had to look. And if you look at American, American posters of the period, it's all about looking proud and looking your best in spite of adversity. So it's strange how this funny little thing called fashion can be a vehicle for hope. But I think it can be when you're actually in the moment as well as being after it. So, so the hat is actually a, an emblem of defiance in a way. I think so, yeah. Specifically the hat. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, the, the hat is the greatest, within clothing, the hat is the greatest symbol. And when you think of the, Her Majesty the Queen, you call it the crown, you don't call it the royal shoe or the royal handbag, um, but it is the crown, that, 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 that's the symbol. 
when you think of a policeman, you think of a policeman's helmet, you know, that, uh, you think of Che Guevara, you think of his beret. So the hat's always the symbol of whatever you want that intention to be. And, you know, is a hat a symbol of optimism? Well, if you put a, a pink hat on with yellow flowers, yes, how could it not be? I noticed you did berets for Kim, Kim Jones's um, yeah. Dior collection, yeah. which she showed yesterday. Um, and berets have become something of a specialty of yours at Dior. Well, berets were always a speciality of mine personally anyway. Um, it's, um, it's a hat that I've always loved um, because, you know, young, old, rich, poor, they suit everybody and can be worn in a million different ways. So it's like a, 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 the t-shirt of hats, really. Um, and yeah, Monsieur Dior loved a beret. So really that's where, it's my personal love of it. And um, Monsieur Dior loved a, a beret. If you look back at his um, drawings from the very early collections, 1947, 1948, you will see there'll be the full skirted new look and there'll be a little flick on top of the head, which was a beret. So as in a way to finish, to complete the silhouette, but not to add something else to it because he believed it was all one thing. That's how he felt about hats. They weren't a separate item. They wear the clothing. I, I mean, it's a, uh, it, it, the beret is a t-shirt of hats, yes. So the t and the t-shirt has, has in its, in its history been a political garment. I mean, it, yes. and, and the beret has been a particular, a, a political hat. Uh, yeah. It was interesting to read that um, Moko Boifo, who, um, who, Moko Boifo, who Kim was inspired by were, and collaborated on the collection with, had used sort of Black Panther representations in his work in the past. And obviously you associate the beret with Black Panthers. Was that a taller consideration, do you think? In, well, absolutely. Um, I, I, in fact, I was in Miami and I saw those um, paintings and many of the paintings the guys were wearing hats. Um, sometimes they were great big blue fedoras to match a blue suit. Um, but the, the beret somehow was something which was very Dior, more than a big hat. And it was something which sort of sparked Kim's imagination. And I thought, oh yes, that's very Dior. I mean, we didn't do a khaki one very specifically, which was the painting which appeared on the um, E invitation. Um, but uh, yeah, we did berries and embroidery and moiré and straw in different materials. But what what have um, it's 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 so it's it's so interesting seeing something like that and 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 having a sense of how things that we sort of take for granted have, have taken on all sorts of different significances in this in the last six months. Um, what what have you actually been doing? Um, and, and how have you been thinking about what you do over the last six months? Well, basically, I've been at an airport or at the Eurostar every week for 40 years. <laughs> so for me, it was very every strange. Every day? Every week. Not every, every day. day. I mean, it seems yeah. like every day, but not actually yeah. every day. It was very strange because suddenly you were doing some, I was doing something completely, completely different. Um, and it was strange to be at home, number one. But at the same time, I have that discipline, you know, I, I have a company and I have employees. So my first duty really was to look after them. But then slowly I could retreat here. And what was extraordinary, because we're working on a new collection and we present a new collection in September, is that I actually could do all the trials of my new collection myself. I mean, normally I never ever have the time or the focus. And I think that's been the same for everybody in the creative industries is to have the creative focus that not much else is going on. So therefore you do actually have to concentrate on that piece of white paper and get through it and get through your creative pain and just bloody well get on with it. Uh, and I did do, um, and it was great. And we showed something um, last month, uh, a film 
made by Yog Zuba, and Nanuri was my muse for that, and I made things to suit her, and, which was extremely well received. But so that was one thing. I mean, I don't know why I always have a million different projects going on. And then we had the Dual Crew show, um, which is happening in pre preparing for that, which is happening next week in Lecce, but actually preparing the collection over the summer. So I was FaceTiming with manufacturers and in, in my atelier in France, people working at home. Um, yeah, there was a lot of organization to do. I spent most of my time doing this on Zoom, actually. Did you, and so you were actually making things for the first time in a while, were making yeah. things yourself, were you? I, I was making things myself, just the prototypes. Um, I think if I was to make all the hats myself, that most of them would be rejected by the head of my workroom as being somewhat dodgy stitching. Um, but yeah, absolutely. And um, I, can, I can show you, this is something I brought earlier. You see, I have this little um, miniature wooden head, which I sort of carry everywhere with me anyway. Um, and this is um, uh, half size, amazingly enough. And this is one of the little twirls. This is one that didn't make it, by the way. Um, and so, very Edith Apple. Yes, yes. Uh, and uh, you know, I've got a few. She, she's got a few different sort of wardrobe changes here. Um, you know, this can be uh, more sort of Edith Sitwell, if you can imagine her in it, um, mm -hmm. or maybe Nina Simone as well. You know, you know. Um, what else have we got here? Um, oh, yeah. Well, I think that's enough, probably. So anyway, this goes... <laughs> <laughs> before I actually start doing the Franny Craddock uh, cookery demonstration. Um, but this is... It's like, like you're waving your maracas. <laughs> We're not that sort of website. <laughs> um, but that's what I was, that was what I was working on every day. And um, so that was great. Plus other things like the collections for Dior and also the uh, Dior Hats book that I edited and sort of created came out during that time as well. So there was lots of things to do with that. So every day was a busy day. It's so funny when people say to me, oh, are you just sitting at home um, you know, doing yoga? No, it was like I got to eight o'clock in the evening and still everything wasn't done for the day. Well, you weren't making sourdough bread anyway. No, no. I, I mean, I wish I could have done all banana bread or Things, but, oh, banana bread, that was the other one. Yeah. Uh, did, but did you find yourself thinking differently about what you do? I mean, it, it's been a time of such reflection and um, it's, it's the word I've heard almost as, well, almost more than any other word that people have really reflected on what they do, why they do it. Um, people, some people using the time to step back, other people, um, you know, forging on into the uncertain future. How have you been feeling? I think for me it was very different because you always term me as being the busiest man in fashion, which in a way I think I am. But, it was, but I used the word before, just being able to focus on one thing. I mean, it was terrible that it had to arrive in this way, but that was an extraordinary thing that I, apart from one collection, that's it, I've only ever have done that in my first collection, that was 40 years ago. So in a funny way, I've had been able to have the focus and the time to do something that I haven't been able to do for 40 years. And that's been extraordinary. And have I been looking at um, what I do and the way I do it? Yes, absolutely I have, which is why I think I'm so lucky to be able to do the things I'm doing. You know, what, what do we think? Do we think of the purpose of fashion or why we're creating all of that? Yes, we do. And actually, I think very, very clearly, um, you know, the purpose of fashion or the purpose of what I create is maybe to give people a dream, to give people the idea of more fun times, a better life, better optimism, something which is purely for their pleasure. You know, just before all of this happened, you had that you had the bit that big show in Brighton, yeah. in the Royal Pavilion in Brighton, and that was such a gorgeous piece of Stephen Jonesian extravaganza. Um, is it? Am I wrong in thinking that that 
the work since then, I've, I, feel, I feel a sort of almost sculptural purity in what I've seen, what you've posted and the film you showed during the London Digital Fashion Week, that there's this, I, f I feel almost like a reduction in a way that you've, that you've, you've made things, it, you know, it, it's kind of an interesting arc for artists when you, you feel that they do tend towards a more a, a purity and a sort of radical purity actually as they get, as they get older. Yeah, I don't know, I mean, you can make things fancy you can make things simple. Um, and one thing that you do learn as you, I mean, you know, the fear of the piece of white paper is still the same. But one thing you do learn when you get older as a designer is that you know when to stop because you know you can kill the design by overworking it. And also you become aware that maybe your first cut of the scissors, which is done through your subconscious, is maybe, some, is maybe inherently better than something which is too studied. So I think in a funny way, there's a bit of letting go. Um, and do things become simpler? I mean, I, I feel a bit aghast to say this, but I'm, I mean, the prime example of that is Balenciaga who in his final collections achieved a level of purity that he didn't really have, or he wasn't really looking for earlier on. Um, I wouldn't compare myself with Balenciaga, but that's one thing that I, I really know that happened to him. And similarly, Dior, in his collections of sort of 55, 56, 57, which were the last collections he did, even though all the ladies around him wanted him to continue to make big ball gowns, which were tightly corseted because they were money in the bank, because that's what Dior was known for. He wanted to go in the opposite direction. I mean, his last collection was called the Lean Libre. You know, it was all about freedom. And he wanted to do unwasted things, which were easy to wear, which were comfortable for the modern woman, and, all, and a very modern way of thinking, and which were much simpler visually and in construction. So um, I don't know if I'm getting more simple, but I think the messages that, I don't know, it, it, Quentin Crisp said, you know, as you get older, you know, you, your drugs have to get stronger. Um, and, uh, but I think, I think in the opposite way, you want to become simpler. You don't need to put a flower on it. Well, it's interesting mentioning Balenciaga because, of course, his whole, his work was a spiritual quest. And he, he got more, he got simpler as he felt, yet I guess he felt he got closer to God. You know, he, remember that uh, he, he tried to find God in a sleeve. Um, and so he would recut and recut and recut. And of course, he, he never could. So there's a, it's, it's, it's a, the hat, I mean, the, the, you can translate that to, that to a hat quite easily when you're working with a form which you're trying to balance, you know, find a, achieve the perfect balance. And, and perfection is, is it unattainable? Are you in a constant quest for perfection that is just out of reach? Or do you grab that all the time? I, I'm not in a constant quest for perfection, no. Because perfection often kills spontaneity. And a hat is very beautiful itself if it is perfect. But actually what somebody wants from it is not something which is beautiful on their head, but something which is spontaneous and fresh and invigorating. I mean, that's how I feel about it. And not everybody would think about it like that, but um, yeah. That works perfectly for our post-COVID world, world though, that notion that the spontaneity, the sort of effervescence then, that, you know, people are going to be looking for. But don't you that think kind of that's absolutely the key of fashion, to have something which is effervescent and spontaneous? Or is it just, I don't know, People want clothes for all sorts of different reasons, you know. 
Well, you know, Cecil Beaton talked about the glass of fashion and, and you know, a fashion is truly a mirror. Obviously it, reflect, it reflects darkness just as much as it reflects light. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really super curious to see how this, how the next few years unfold, you know, how, how people, how not just designers, but also customers adjust um, what, what, it, what, it, what it will be that people are looking for. Because, you know, like I said, um, with this uncertainty, we don't know what's going to happen in September, let, let alone next, next year or the year after that. I mean, there's a whole gulf between the fashion business and the consumer. And at the, certainly at the beginning of lockdown, everybody was talking about there will be a whole new world afterwards, that people will think in a different way. Um, that the fashion business will regulate itself in a way that is more responsible, etc., etc. And yes, that is true. But I think for the customer, even more, they're thinking about it very much in a traditional way. Like that, you know, you buy a new sparkly pink t-shirt put it on a Friday night and it, you you know you have a wonderful evening there's, there's something which is very basic and simple like that at every market level you know whether you're buying a t-shirt from Oxford Street for three pounds or whether you're bu- buying a Dior a Couture ball gown that sort of happiness and zest that it can bring you is one of its most important functions and I think when fashion designers were considering about the fashion business, blah, 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 they actually forgot really what their customers want. And what- But when you talk, when you talk about a, 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 a couture dress, um, that's a keeper. Yeah. You know, that's not something you wear once. That's something that you, I mean, in a way couture is, you could call it the most sustainable kind of fashion that there is because mm-hmm. It's cherished and, and it might even be passed on to somebody else. But a sparkly T-shirt from Oxford Street, you know, this is a, this is a kind of... Well, it might be for you, Tim, that you'd throw it away after one wearing. But I you know, cherish it till the day I die. I know, but, especially if you had a good time in it. This is the thing. <laughs> and if you're <clears throat> a single mom or a family, the fact that you can actually go out and buy a T-shirt for three pounds and it can make you feel great, Maybe that's the only medicine you've got. We don't, I, I think, we don't think of it from the very happy, pretty designer side of things, where, you know, a pair of shoes is £1,500, a Stephen Jones hat is £3,000. But actually, out in the real world, every different price level has got its customer. And yeah. it's arrogant yeah. of us to expect that other people are going to consider fashion in the way that we do. No, but I do think it's important that part of the sustainability um, debate has been um, taking a stand against disposability. And, Absolutely. And you re- re- re-educating people in, in, well, educating people in the value of things. If that T-shirt has a value to you, you know, you wear it more than once. There's a whole, the whole notion of less is better. Oh, yes. um, it, it, that, that, that applies, that, that's not a sort of rarefied elitist point of view. That, that's, just, that's just letting people know that, that, that what they have was made by somebody. You know, what they have was made, what they have is made by somebody else. It has a value. It has, there's a dignity in somebody else's labor. Absolutely. I mean, this is a massive, a massive uh, challenge, but it Ab- has to happen. Absolutely. And I couldn't agree more. However, there are a whole lot of people out there who really can't afford fashion, really can't afford clothing at any level. And those things which are a lower price are giving for them exactly the same service as when somebody goes out and buys a Prada handbag. Mm. Exactly the same. There is no difference. Obviously, those things are produced, and there's a, a the film by Livia Firth, the, the real cost, which is the factories in Bangladesh, and now we know about the, the factories in Leicester, and um, that mm-hmm. it, it is not, not at all good the way that those things are actually created, because if you 
are buying a t-shirt for three pounds or two pounds you know who is suffering because of that somebody is but i know obviously in designer fashion at the moment we're talking about sustainability and how fashion can go forward and be less wasteful and not so many clothes and not so many collections here you know all that is great but and, and the consumers will appreciate that those consumers who are buying designer level merchandise at other areas of the market i'm not so sure because people don't have that luxury to be so flexible it's a bit like buying organic meat or something well yes fine but if you're a mum on income support um the fact that you can buy meat at all is extraordinary Mm. Well, it's a long road, definitely, yeah, yeah. or everybody feels the way that, that, um... Cheers, cup of tea. It is the afternoon. That we the, feel the way we're talking about. But I remember, I remember um, talking to you about sustainability. What do you mean it's the afternoon? You're having tea in the afternoon? What is, what's in that cup? <laughs> Mother's ruin. Gin, no. <laughs> tea. Salon tea, actually. Can I sniff that cup? Um, the, we were talking about, um, you know the its impact on your job that there are materials you you're not allowed to use anymore oh yeah um, so so many and um most of the laws actually governing is that, is that increasing all the time that there's, there's less and less that you that you have access to the the big changes have already happened uh, and they were really about animal products but those came in in the beginning of the 19th century with the audubon society in new york and that was really the before the whole um, CITES documents, the protection of, of wildlife like leopards or tiger skin or ivory, or whatever. Actually, protection from bird from birds. Um, that was the first thing which introduced all those laws. And these were, it was primarily plumage from Papua New Guinea and South America because those populations were being decimated, and groups of women first of all in America, then here in Britain, got together and said, no, we, um, we can't decorate particularly our hats with that, with those sorts of things. And actually that was one of the things that Chanel did at the very beginning. You know, she was a middle and a first in the dressmaker and afterwards. One of the things that she did was, was made a fashion of untrimmed boaters, whereas everybody else was wearing a hundred different wings of paradise on the head. She, showed a very minimal and clean boater and that was her first claim to fame as well as the sweaters and but uh, do you do you and uh, but, but even within your career i mean things that that you that you used when you were working with john galliano and dior couture yeah you know 20 30 years ago maybe 30 yeah 20, 30 years ago 20. you're not allowed to use those uh no absolutely i mean there is a lot of furs that for example are not necessarily protected but we want wouldn't want to use now because we and the public have a different point of view um mm. also there's a, there is even now a, a whole discussion about feathers whether you can use feathers in a hat all the feathers we use are a byproduct of um, food production and they're what we call barnyard fowl so it's pheasants chickens um geese, guinea fowl, um, ostrich is the only one, which, and they're farmed for meat as well. So that's a, a whole big discussion, discussion, and I think every single newspaper around the world has done an article about these feathers. It's a, a popular item to, to put in. And there are certain materials which are, I mean, people are always amazed that felt is actually made from fur, from animal fur. Um, and it can't be made from anything else because basic, the basic way that it's made is that animal fur is like human hair that when it gets damp, it sort of goes curly, as any woman will tell you, and their hair goes frizzy when you're on, on a damp day. But basically it's the fibres interlocking together which makes felt. So um, people are questioning felt at the moment. And then, of course, the straw, so much of which comes from China, and as it has for hundreds of years, and people are questioning things coming from China or from Central America, like Ecuador, South America, the other straw producing countries. So it's always up in flux. Um, but there are 
many, many new fabrics that are quite interesting to use as well. Tell me about those, because do you find, do you find restriction inspiring? Yes. In your design? Absolutely. It's actually very funny. When I'm making these prototypes, often what I do is I start with a metre square of this fabric, which is called tarlatan. So my first prototype might be quite big, and then I use every single little scrap so it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. But that's sort of this wonderful and ridiculous self-imposed discipline. Um, it, it's always good to have a brief, which is like why I like working with other fashion designers as well as doing my own thing. It's a completely different vibe. Um, but what have you been looking at during the last six months? Just you know, just to feed your your creative urges. Any, anything specific? Any artists? And I, when I'm in your library at the office, at, at your office, it, it just is so full of of intriguing, well thumbed volumes. Well, now it's actually all organised in a way that it wasn't where you saw it. Because I was going into work one day a week uh, and checking on things and picking up the post and reorganising my library. What have I been looking at? I actually have been looking at nature. Yes, of course, paintings and things and watching some TV, but I haven't been a, a Netflix whore. Um, I've just been looking at the changing seasons of nature and all plants coming out, all these things that I never, ever see because I'm always, you know, on runway number three at Heathrow. I just don't see those things in a funny way that everybody else does, but I don't. So I will spend hours looking for the looking at the leaves on the wisteria outside my window and marvelling at the cell structure within it, and maybe doing a little drawing with them too. So I think that's how I've been spending my time. And trying to get healthy, not eating hotel food. And cooking then? Cook it, cooking a bit, yes, but um, a bit of yeah, restraint. I mean, I, I, have, I have not been making banana bread, no. I've been running almost every day and doing weights as well, shockingly enough. Ooh, but let's see. No, 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 no. Um, Strong like bull. No. But, but you know, when you do, you imagine when you in the future, when you look at the hats you did in this moment, that they will in some way encapsulate. Can can you do that with your with your career? Can you look at a hat and see how it captured whatever was happening at that particular moment? Oh my God, yes. Because I mean, I always think that. My hats are autobiographical anyway. Um, and I think this collection of hats that I've been working on is by far the most personal collection maybe I've ever made. It's been the most extraordinary experience. Um, and I, I can't even bear to say the words lucky because I would hate to think that luck came out of a, such a terrible situation. Um, but I don't underestimate the rarity of the experience that I've had. I mean, it's been just the, the simple act of getting up and being able to go like the potter's wheel or going and picking up a, a paintbrush in the morning, being able to do that. And in fact, not being pulled in all those different directions that the fashion world demands that, that we be pulled in, pulled in. Uh, whether it's you know, doing press or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all the different things that I do. So when, I, when you first asked me about this, I said focus, and I think that's the most important thing I have had. But yes, the hats look very different, totally. This is, uh, How? Tell them. Tell me how. I think there's maybe a complexity of intent, but a simplicity of how it's rendered. So things are as they seem. They're, they're, they're not contrived. There's hopefully an honesty about them, because I think now, in all the different things, all the different emotions which we have all been going through, and I think everybody has been going, 
sort of a up and down emotional period. And we're the lucky ones. You know, we're living in a first world country and, you know, touch wood, we have not been ill. Um, that maybe the most important thing that we've been experiencing is, you know, honesty or something. Honesty of purpose. That's what's... So interesting that, that you know, I, I was speaking to Mutual Prada about her new collection and she also talked about complex, complexity of purpose but simplicity of, of, um, real, of realization yeah. and um, honesty being the sort of bridge. Yeah. Humility as well. I hear, I've, I've heard designers I've been talking to in, in Zoom talk about humility mm -hmm. as being the takeaway from one of the one of the most important takeaways from this time that because i think you see this whole big thing going on outside and you think oh my god i'm making pretty clothes for spoiled women or something like that and yes that's the end product but what it's made everybody do is really look at what they're doing and they're you know their their sort of first purpose and maybe the reason they got into the fashion business in the first place and it's very, very easy to forget that because 99.99% of the time you're being told to do otherwise and you have to do otherwise because you're running a business and being a media superstar if you're Kim Jones or, you know, it's, it's very difficult to remember the reasons that you got into it and that the, the joy of creation that you feel, which has somehow been unsaddled from the politics of creating with a big, within a big company. I mean, I'm sure Mutu must also feel this. You know, she works with this giant organization, but essentially when she gets up in the morning, there's a piece of paper and her thought and what should I do? But this is huge. This is like a, this is kind of like a Damascene conversion or something. Yeah. You know, this is taking you right back to a, to a blank, to a blank slate in a way. Absolutely. And I think every, I think everybody has been going through that. Um, all the designers I know who I work with regularly um, have been going through that and been really examining what they're doing. And I think, considering the state of how, well, how retail will be or not, it's a very good thing that everybody's considering what they're doing because I think they're going to really have to reformulate their, their ideas and the way that they function because it, the fashion business is not going to function in the way that it used to. What would be your ideal world then? What would be your ideal vision of the fashion world after this? I mean, I, I, I've said all along, I. I love the idea of the shop with the, the artisan, you know, and the personal relationship between the creator and the customer. The, the sort of quite an old world vision, actually. Yes. And for me as well, that privacy. And sometimes people say, well, you know, why do people buy haute couture? Why do they buy such expensive things? Because it's being made for them especially because they can influence the design. Um, you know, uh, Balenciaga was the, the greatest designer, but he made tennis shorts for his clients. You know, he made aprons. He did all these almost like dressmakery things, which he did with the same passion as he did a grand ball gown. Um, you know, that closeness of working with somebody is very important. So I think, yeah, the, there's that, and, and, and privacy. Most clients actually, or so many clients don't, who are buying very expensive things, don't want to have a, a dress that they've seen on the cover of Vogue. They want something which is much more discreet than that, which is especially for them. And I know, um, for example, a, a friend of mine who works for Hermes says that during lo lockdown, their made to measure service, you know, people, who normally are super busy businessmen or have very busy lives, have been sending in drawings and they're made to measure business. So, you know, I want to have a, a leather case for, you know, my little head or something like that. 
um, have, have gone through the roof. So that's the special. Yes, if you want a great T-shirt, you can get that anywhere. But actually what people will spend money on is something very special. So I think Haute Couture has got, definitely got a future. I think certain aspects of Pret-a-Porter are more difficult. But, but that, that's perfect, perfect for you then, because people, people would come to you and say, make me a hat. Well, the extraordinary, the extraordinary thing is that um, during lockdown and coming out of lockdown, I know that all over the world, hat sales, not only mine, have been going through the roof. Amazingly oh. enough, yes, in America, in the Far East, in China, in Japan, people have been buying hats because they're an expression of, I don't know, a vapid but wonderful good time. And where are they wearing them? Maybe they're wearing them at home. Maybe they just want to get the box. Maybe they just want the knock on the front door. See, I do like the idea that, that, that things that we've kind of paid lip service to as private pleasures yeah. actually have gone back to being private pleasures. Well, I mean, people getting dressed up at home, which I... Yeah, maybe <laughs> they're putting the hats on and having wild... Putting the hats on and having wild sex. I mean, I hope they are. I mean, a hat's an aphrodisiac. Well, maybe you can put a hat on and you can play that person you want to be rather than the person that you are. A hat and a heel. Hat and a heel. And naked in between. <laughs> You've said that to me, hats are an aphrodisiac, though. You did say that to me once. Oh God, am I repeating myself? No, no. I think it's. I think it's a. I think it's a. It's a. It's an idea worth repeating. Yeah, yeah. Infinitely. Yeah, well, I think. Stephen, I, 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 I think we need to get you in a few hats. I know you've got very beautiful hair, but. Um... You you measured my head once, and you said it was the biggest head you'd ever measured. I was telling you when I had a motorbike that I couldn't get a crash helmet in the biggest commercially available size of crash helmet. I had to have a crash helmet made for me. I'm sure, you, I'm sure you could have gone to NASA and they had to help you out. Yeah, really? Why well, getting a new head? No, you laughed and then you measured my head and you said, oh my God, you're right. <laughs> it's just, it's just. Is it all those brains or is it <laughs> yeah. solid New Zealand, solid Kiwi upbringing? Now, if you put your ear to my ear, you can hear the wind whistling in the, in, in, in inside my skull, whistling across the unmoored, the unmoored mind. Mm -hmm. Like the sound dome outside Palm Springs. Or oh, the, the Cinerama on yeah. Sunset Boulevard. Where, um, where, where next then? Um, you've got Lecce for Dior Couture, but what- Yes, well, I'm, I'm actually making hats for a big wedding. Um, this weekend coming up and then Lecce the week afterwards and then it tends to go quiet in the summer but you know preparing for, for collections in September because of course the thing about fashion business is we're, we're working on things for this time next year I'm working about a year in advance so hopefully by then things will have found some sort of balance and certainly all the big, in Britain, all the big social events like Ascot, all those weddings which were cancelled this year and have been postponed until next year will all happen. So I think um, 2021 for me is going to be a very, very busy year. So the fact that I might have a spare afternoon off after this is finished is, you know, wonderful. Do you sort of dread the, uh, if it's Tuesday, it must be Belgium lifestyle, uh, the return of that lifestyle for, for you, you know, that you, as you said, airport, Eurostar, airport, Eurostar, and, and you've found this inner peace and tranquility at home. Um, do you sort of kind of secretly dread that the, 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 the carousel's going to kick off again at top speed? Well, it certainly is not going to kick off at top speed because we're not going to be I'm not going to be able to commute to Paris in the same way that I used to or go to New York for the weekend for a fitting with Mark Jacobs that's not going to happen because it's too complicated and I've traveled a few times going through and I have to say Eurostar extremely well organized but it's not going to have the same ease and if it doesn't have the same ease I'm going to I mean already I do fittings with um, Tom Brown and Mark Jacobs and clients in Japan. 
um, through FaceTime or through Zoom or through WhatsApp. So for me, this is slightly business as usual. But you're at home. Yeah, and, and I'm at home. Um, and am I scared of it going back to what it was? Funny enough, just before quarantine, I had to go to Paris for the day. And I could be there almost in the third person. It was very interesting to see my work there and also what I was supposed to be doing within this fashion bubble that we occupy. And it was great, but I was very happy to be back home at the end of the day. Well, I was always worried about you. I wanted you to take it easier. So that, that is my hope for you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Keep it up, but keep it. Yeah, I mean, at the same time, this is life, not a rehearsal. So, you know, you might as well get on with it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille. Well, um, thank you so much, Stephen. It's lovely to see you. And um, lovely to see you too. And an image. I don't know if we will see each other in September. Well, we might see each other socially before that, but in a professional level, God knows what's going to happen in September. I know some people have cancelled their shows. Some people are hell-bent on having their shows or some sort of showing. I know the, the one thing about fashion, it evolves. If it doesn't evolve, it doesn't make sense. You know, we haven't seen other people since March the 7th. Yeah. We haven't actually been with other people since yeah. March the 7th. Yeah. It's kind of physically, it's a strange, mm -hmm. strange world we're adjusting. But you're always in my heart. <laughs> Never far from my thoughts. All right, love you. <laughs> okay, well, uh, great to speak to you. See you, Stephen. Okay, see you, Tim. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, give us a rating, and you might be interested in joining the Business of Fashion's global membership community, BOF Professional. Our members receive exclusive deep dive analysis, regular email briefings, as well as unlimited access to our archive of over 10,000 articles, our new iPhone app, learning materials from BOF Education.